are continuing with our story of Peter this morning. If you uh, listen to the song that uh, Maddie and I sang earlier, it's, uh, I'll, I'll give you all one guess as to who wrote it. Casting Crowns, Mark Hall, uh, and Matthew West, who he likes to write with. But um, it's off of their album called Thrive, and it's all about Peter. It's, it's essentially the story of Peter's life. Um, and so I found it fitting that we do that one uh, this morning, especially because in the second verse, right, it says, um, and I felt the sea beneath my feet as I stepped out on the angry waves, but you saw the storm raging within, you reached down and caught me then. And today... We are talking about the second major point, if you will, in Peter's life. And it is when he walks on water. As a kid, um, whenever I read this story, I was always like, oh, Peter, what an idiot. First he got out of the boat. Then he didn't keep his eyes on Jesus. What this guy? As an adult, I realize, holy cow, he got out of the boat. How many of you have gotten out of the boat before when, when Jesus has called you out onto the waves? Exactly. We might call it foolishness. We might call it foolhardy, stupidity, moronic, choose your term. But the fact of the matter is, and we're going to read it, that Jesus says, come. And so Peter had one of two options. He could disobey or he could obey. He chose to obey. And this is a, another one of those watershed moments in Peter's life where he begins to really grasp who it is that he's dealing with, who it is that he's following. He's going to make a lot more mistakes in his life. But I think that this is one of the major moments where he truly sees, he's called Jesus Lord before, but I think this is one of the moments where he's truly beginning to see this is more than just a prophet. This is more than who John the Baptist was. This is more than just a man empowered by God. Maybe, just maybe, this is God himself. Let's read through it. We're in Matthew chapter 14 today. Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. And it's on your screens as, uh, as usual, assuming Andy flips the slide. He doesn't have to, and then you're only going to get verses 22 through 26. So it's up to you, Andy. You've got the power. I've got the Bible, so I'm just going to read it right from here. But everyone else, they're reliant upon you. See, here's the thing. Uh, he told me about how hard it was last week to edit, so I'm trying to beat that this week. Verse 22, Matthew chapter 14. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come! Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me! Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. Let's dive into it. Number one on your note sheets, if you grabbed a bulletin. Number one on your note sheets. What they're told, part one. What they're told, part one. So we begin this whole thing, by the way, so this begins right after he's fed the 5,000, which is not an accurate statement. 
Jesus does not just feed 5,000 people there. The conservative estimate is that he actually fed about 25,000 people. How do they come to that? If you read that section, it says he, re he feeds 5,000 men. That does not count the women. That does not count the children. And so modern uh, uh, smart people, way smarter than me, estimate it to be right around 25,000 people that he fed that day. Right? Feeding 5,000 is pretty impressive when he's got five loaves of bread and two fish. He fed 25,000, give or take, and still had food left over. Massive miracle. On top of that, he's been teaching 25,000 people. He's tired because we mentioned before he's 100% God. He's also 100% human. Humans get tired. You might be tired right now, right? Humans get tired. Jesus is exhausted, and so he tells his disciples, get in the boat and keep going. I'm going to send the crowds away. And then he doesn't go to the disciples until pretty late in the night. It didn't take him that long to send the crowds away. What was he doing after he sent the crowds away and before he went to the disciples? Anybody have an idea? Sleeping? I don't think so. It's possible. I'm not saying object no. It's possible. I don't think so. I think there's examples in scripture of what he was doing. I think he went and spent some time with his father. I can't prove it. It doesn't say it there. I can't prove it 100%. But based upon other examples we have of Jesus... And what he did when he would send the crowds and the disciples away, I think he said, I'm exhausted spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically. I'm going to go spend some time with my father. He very well might have taken a nap. There is nothing wrong with taking a nap. In fact, God tells, I think it's Elijah, the one, the one prophet in the Old Testament who is just complaining nonstop, and God's literally, he goes, have you eaten? When was the last time you slept? And after he has Elijah sleep and eat, he wakes up in his way better attitude. So God's not against sleep. So Jesus very well may have taken a nap there as well. But I'm guessing he spent quite a lot of that time talking with his dad. So he comes to the disciples in the night. He comes to the disciples in the night. I'm going to back up before that. He gives the disciples their first directive. Their first directive. Get in the boat. And start going to the other side. We know, I didn't read these verses, but later in, uh, at chapter, in chapter 14, we read that they are going to, um, it's in verse 34, uh, Genseret. So they're crossing the sea. Not like the Atlantic Ocean. Um, but they're crossing, um, my brain just went blank on me. I can't remember. I'm sorry. Probably. Uh, the Red Sea. I think they're crossing the Red Sea, actually. Either way, they're crossing the, 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 one of the major bodies of water in that area. Apparently, my ADD is just not going to let me remember stuff today, so we're in for a fun ride. Here we go. They're crossing the water. You might be able to see. Some of your Bibles might have maps in the back of them. You can check there, or you could Google it. I don't care. Uh, either way, that's what I do. If I don't know something, I do a quick Google and go, where, where can I find this? In the Oh, there it is. Okay. So, he gives them a directive. They follow it, as they should. Get in the boat. Go, start going to the other side. Now, it's weird, because here's the thing. Most of the time, who's on the water during the night? If you remember from last week's sermon, you'll know the answer to this. Who's on the water most of the time during the night? Fishermen. You usually just don't take a boat ride across the lake. That's not what you do. But it's the end of the day. They wanted to go to the other side. Or Jesus wanted them to go to the other side. So they do. They might have questioned it a little bit. They might have gone, we don't know this, but they're humans, right? These are 12 human men. So they very well probably went, what the heck are we doing? 
He's going to send the crowds away by himself. Now remember, we're at a point where people are actively trying to kill him already. Or wanting him dead. I shouldn't say trying to kill him. They want him dead. And they're like, we're going to leave Jesus alone while he's with 25,000 people. And we're just going to go. All right, fine. I think it's a dumb idea, but we're going to go. They get in the boat. And they go. And I mentioned this already. Jesus needs to recharge. He's got to recharge the batteries in order to keep teaching. We're, gonna, we're not going to read it today, uh, but later on in Matthew chapter 14 and then throughout chapter 15, he begins teaching again, right? So he needs to recharge, and that's why he sends them away. I'm not up here saying Jesus was an introvert. I don't know. It doesn't matter. I do know this. When you need to recharge, there is only one source for your batteries, and that's God. That's it. That's it. Sleep is a great thing. God created us to need sleep. Please do not go home and go, Pastor Sam told me I don't need to sleep. I only need to pray. No. Go to bed tonight at a reasonable hour. Theoretically, everyone in this room should get between seven to eight hours of sleep a night. Did you also know between the hours of 10 and midnight is statistically when you will get your best sleep? So theoretically, if you want the best sleep you can get, you should go to bed at 10 right around there, and you should get up between 5 and 6. If you genuinely want your best sleep, that's when you should do it. Now, I don't like mornings. I'm a night owl myself, so I'd much rather go to bed at midnight and get up at noon. But the fact of the matter is that we were actually created to go to bed earlier than what we do and get up earlier than what we do. Most people throughout history went to bed relatively when the sun went down and got up relatively when the sun came back up. We don't do that. But that is generally how our bodies were created. But either way, the best place to recharge, if you are mentally and emotionally and spiritually drained, and even physically drained, the amount I can't tell you the amount of times where I've been physically exhausted and I've gone and spent some time with God. And does it replace my sleep? No, I still need to go to bed that night. But you get that little jump in you. That little, it's like you were jump-started. Jesus knows that better than everybody. He needs to recharge. And he can't do that with the disciples around because the disciples are like having 12 small children follow him around all the time. Asking him, listen, I love kids. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Whenever I'm with Jax, he asks about a billion questions. And oftentimes I tell him, I say, Jax, I don't know the answer to that question. And he'll go, oh, okay. And then he asks another one. Cool. The one day we were driving and he asked me why a letter on a sign was out. And I went, well, because the neon's probably not in it anymore. He goes, why? And I went, I don't know. I don't know. When are they going to get it fixed? I don't know. I'm not in charge of that. I'll call them. I don't know. Excuse me, my seven-year-old nephew would like you to fix the H in Home Depot, if you would, please. Home Depot doesn't have quite the same rank, right? But having, having these 12 disciples with them is like having 12 small children. They're constantly bickering with each other. They're constantly asking questions. You can't recharge when they're around. Most of you in here have been a parent before. You understand how much recharge can you get when their kids are with you. That's why you push them off on the grandparents as often as you can. So he's got to send them away. He has to. And he does. And they go. Does Jesus know there's going to be a storm that night? Yeah, I think he does. He doesn't know everything. He's not omniscient. 
We know that for a fact because the Bible says that only God the Father knows. So we know he doesn't know at least one thing. So we, we think, you know, I think he knows because I think this is about to be a test for those 12 kids that have been following him around for a little bit. We got to put it, put, listen, if you're a good parent, you put your kids to the test on things. I'm not saying you send them out on a boat in the middle of a storm. That's not the right test, okay? But I can't, I can count the number of times where I've talked to my dad and I've been like, why did you do that? And he said, because I needed to test you. Where are you at? Physically, mentally, emotionally, all that kind of stuff. I need to test you. And I need you to test yourself sometimes. You won't know your limits unless you try to push past them. Just saying. Again, on the sleep thing, this is not Pastor Sam telling you, figure out how long you can go without sleep before you start to hallucinate. Don't do that. Go to bed. And the disciples have their first moment of fear versus faith in this moment. It's like when a kid, you know, we have kids church down the hall, right? And oftentimes, especially if it's a new kid, um, they don't want to go to kids church. Why? They don't know anyone there. And what is their safety blanket? Their safety net? Their parents? That's a natural, normal thing. We never force a kid to go to kids church. Whether they've been here for 10 years or it's their first week, we don't force anyone to go to kids church. But it's fearful when your parents first say, go. Right? Do anybody here remember the first time you had to call and schedule a doctor's appointment for yourself? What do I do? Well, you call them. Will they know who I am? Probably not. You'll have to say your name and tell them why you want an appointment. It's okay. Or better yet, when your parents, the first time you're left home alone and they leave you 20 bucks, this won't help you out now, but they leave you 20 bucks and say, order a pizza. Hello? Domino's, what can I get for you? I want a pizza. Of course you do. You call Domino's. What do you want on it? Cheese. Yeah, well, thank you. Right? The first time your parents make you do stuff on your own, it's always frightful because you don't know what you're doing. And that's okay. The first time my dad said, get behind the wheel, I said, yeah, all right. By the way, you're going to hear a lot of stuff from Jax today. He has not driven a car. Don't worry. Um, he drove a roller coaster. That's what he's going to tell you. We went down a hill in a gator, and he thought it was the greatest thing in the world. He was not afraid. As soon as he figured out that that right pedal made it go faster, he went, oh, I like this one more than the one that's on the left. Right, Maddie? Maddie was there. She forced him to do it. But it's fearful when you're asked to do something by yourself for the first time. And Jesus is kind of like the parent to these 12 children that have followed him around nonstop. Go away. Well, Jesus, are you sure? Go away. It's like pushing the bird out of the nest. Get out of here. How many more analogies can I give for this? I bet I could come up with another one. It's their first test of fear versus faith. And they probably are a little afraid, but they have faith. Get in the boat. Start going across the lake to Gensuret. And they do. And hours pass, and their biggest fears are confirmed. There's a storm, and 
the waves are big. And if you've ever seen the boats that they used back then, they were not conducive to large waves. Number two on your note sheets. Number two. What they're told, part two. What they're told, part two. So this storm rages up, and here comes Jesus walking on the water. And what is their first reaction? Oh, bleep, it's a ghost. Now you might say, they've traveled with Jesus. How would they not know this is Jesus? If you saw somebody walking on the water towards you, your first reaction is not going to go, that guy's made of flesh and blood. We like to, to destroy disciples and the, and the Israelites and stuff like that. We forget they're real people. And we see things that are very clearly X and go, it must be Y. So it makes sense that they're like, oh my, there's a ghost. And here's the other thing. If there's a ghost coming towards them, that probably only means one thing. They're about to join. There's going to be 12 more ghosts in a couple minutes. So here comes this ghost, apparently, and they're freaking out. Naturally. And Jesus says in verse 27, but immediately, see, Jesus knows they're terrified. They know they think he's a ghost. And he says, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Take courage. Take heart. Buck up a little bit, guys. It's just me. The one day, so generally what happens when my wife and I go upstairs uh, at night, she goes and showers and I get in bed. So the one day, I, I don't, my wife, um, in case you can't tell, is very pale. I love her too. But if she spends more than two minutes outside, she becomes a lobster. <laughs> We've got three gingers in this room right now. They all get it. So I was in my half asleep mode, right? where you don't understand what's really going on. And I'm laying on my side, because I'm a side sleeper for the most part, and I'm laying on my side, and in the doorway, framed in light from the bathroom, she has clothes on, is this pale figure of a human. And in my half-asleep mind, I went, it's a ghost. I don't believe in ghosts, but there's a ghost in my house right now. And it wasn't until she came over closer to me, at which now I'm really scared, and touched me <laughs> that I realized, oh, this is just my wife. After I have probably said a couple of words that I shouldn't repeat. I understand what it is to think you've seen a ghost when it's actually just a human. Our couch is comfortable. I'll sleep there. But the caps would sleep with me. But Jesus tries to calm me. He says, it is I. And Peter, notice this. There are 12 people in that boat. Peter is the only one with the courage enough to go, if it's actually you, tell me to do something that only Jesus is going to tell me to do. Tell me to walk on this water with you. A ghost doesn't have that power. A ghost doesn't have the power to make you walk on water. There is one, and that's Jesus. And Jesus says one word, come. And if you notice, what's the, um, um, the punctuation? Thank you. It's an exclamation point, an exclamation mark. Jesus did not say, 
come. Jesus said, come. It was a command. It was a command to go. And Peter gets out of that boat like an idiot. Eleven other people in that boat are going, well, we just lost the best person for this boat. He's the fisherman. He actually could maybe keep us alive. And this idiot's climbing out of the boat. Peter's lost his mind. I'm going to come back around to that. Don't worry. Peter gets out of the boat. And what happens? He starts to walk on water. This incredible thing. And he knows that's Jesus now. Jesus gives this command, come, or, 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 as he commands us to go. Church, when Jesus tells you to do something and you do it, the vast majority of people, including people who believe in Jesus, are going to think you're an idiot. They will. You're foolish, foolhardy, you don't understand. Jesus isn't going to call you something to do something that's dangerous. He's not going to call you to step out of the boat. Yes, he will. He very rarely calls you to stay in the boat. But most people are going to think, this is the dumbest thing you've ever done. Peter gets out of the boat. He starts to walk, and he's doing pretty well. Right? I'm sure those first like couple of steps, you know, the, the knees are really wobbly, and he's like, oh, my gosh. And then he's walking. This is great. And he starts to get a little bit bigger inside. He's like, this is great. And then he looks around. He takes his eyes off of Jesus. He feels the wind on him. And he goes, oh, that wind. And he looks down and he sees the waves. And he goes, oh, the waves. And he feels the rain. And he goes, holy. Remember, Peter's a fisherman. Fishermen talked like construction workers talk, right? Holy bleep. I got out of the boat. What is wrong with me? And immediately, down. It's kind of like, how many of you ever seen Looney Tunes? Right? When somebody, like we'll use Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd, right? And Elmer Fudd runs off the edge of a cliff. Or, you know what, we'll do, we'll do Wiley Coyote and uh, Roadrunner. Wiley Coyote runs off the edge of the cliff, and, and he, he stops, and he looks around, and then he looks down. He was fine as long as he kept running. As soon as he realized he had run off the cliff, that's what happened to Peter. Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus. Now, you're going to have the answer. It's on your note sheet. Does Peter have anything to fear? When he steps out of that boat? No. Why? Jesus told him to come. So no matter what happens to Peter, Jesus is still in control of it. Could Peter have died? You bet. He could have. If that was what God had designed, that's what would have happened. But as soon as Jesus said, come, Peter should have known, I have nothing to fear. The waves, who cares? The wind, who cares? All of it, who cares? The 11 people behind me calling out to me, who cares? I've got my eyes on Jesus who told me to come. When Jesus tells you to come or go, you have nothing to fear. 
Money? Yeah, it'd probably be tight. Friends? Yeah, you'll probably lose some of them. This world? Yeah, it's going to mock you. It's going to ridicule you. Depending on what part of the world you are in, it might try to kill you. You have nothing to fear because Jesus is the one who's on the water. And then maybe my favorite part of this whole thing. Peter, when he starts to sink, who does he call out to? Jesus. He still recognizes who Jesus is. And he says, Lord, save me. And what is the word, the first word of verse 31? Immediately. We have nothing in this whole section that tells us that Peter and Jesus are anywhere close to each other on that water. In fact, I'm going to guess that they're not. And yet, immediately, Jesus is there to lift him back up out of the water. And notice, does it say, immediately Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him, put him back in the boat, and then said, you have little faith, why did you doubt? No, that exchange seems to happen where? On the water. He's pulled him out. He's pulled him out of the water, but he has not put him back in the safety of the boat yet. Why? Because the boat's not safety. Safety is wherever Jesus is. And they get back in the boat, and the rest of the disciples go, oh my gosh, this, is, this has to be God's son. This has to be God's son. Took them a while to figure it out. Let's apply it to our lives, shall we? Will you go tell mom? Thank you. Let's apply it to our lives. Church, this is the third time I'm going to say this now. Fear versus faith. The two do not coincide. Either, you will either have faith and walk, or you will have fear and stay in the boat. I don't mean you won't have some questions. I don't mean that everything's going to go peachy keen. I do mean that fear and faith do not coincide. You know how Jesus says, you know, me or money, you can't serve two masters? It's the same basic thing. You cannot live in fear and also live in faith. You can't. It's not possible. Because if you are living in fear, you will not do what Christ has said. And if you're living in faith, you won't have fear of when he's told you to do something. I am guessing that all of us in this room or listening at some point, whether it's today or down the road, have something in our lives where we are walking in fear, not in faith. How do I know? We're human. There's something where you and I, right? I'm not just pointing a finger here. Where we are so caught up in our fear that we are unwilling to walk in faith. And say, okay, God, I'll get out of the boat. So here's your practical application for today. Get out of the stinking boat. He's already told you to come. So do it. You'll know the answer to this one, Linnea. Are you ready? Slow obedience is what? Disobedience. How many times did we hear that? Too many. Slow obedience is still disobedience. If your parent says, Sam, come do the garbage now. It was one of my jobs to burn the garbage when I was a kid. Right, that was one of my chores. If dad said, or mom said, Sam, go burn the garbage, and I said, okay, and I did not get up immediately and do it, 
That is disobedience. They told me to do it. If I did it 20 minutes later, it does not matter. It was disobedience. If they said, Sam, at some point today, can you burn the garbage? And I did it 20, 30, a couple hours later, that's obedience. Because they said, sometime today. If they said, go do this, it's disobedience to not stop what you are doing and do it immediately. Church, God is your father. We sing a song about it, like twice a month at least. Whenever we're going to do that song, I tell Maddie, I call it Gucci Gucci Daddy. Song is called Good Good Father. She doesn't like it as much. I think it's great. The fact of the matter is that he's your father. And when he says do something, to him and haw is to dis be disobedient, is to disobey. Even if you do it at some point, you have still disobeyed. I'm not trying to destroy us here this morning, but church, you are in disobedience to God the Father. In something. I know it. And if you sit there and go, well, not me, then you're a prideful liar. And you're in disobedience because he said, don't be prideful and don't lie. So I'm still right. Got it. Get out of the boat. I don't know what it is. This isn't a practical one where you can say, this isn't a quantifiable practical one. I try to give those a lot. This isn't one of those. Because I don't know. I don't know what John's going through or that John. Oh, my word. We don't have oh, one Jason. Dang it. I was like, we don't have any of our 18 Jasons in the room today. Nope, we do. We've got one. I don't know what God has called you to do. I don't. But I know he's called you to do something. Because he never just says, sit back and don't do anything. He doesn't do that. And I could give you a litany of examples of things. I'm not going to because we'd be here, it's already 1041 and we'd be here a long time. But the fact of the matter is that you have something in your life where Jesus has said, come, walk on the water to me. And you have said, yeah, okay. And you're still in the boat. I am challenging you and I am encouraging you. Get out of the boat. Now, you might need somebody in your life who helps you to get out of the boat. I do not mean somebody who pushes you out of the boat. That's still disobedience because you don't want to do it still, right? I'm not saying you should have somebody else in the boat when you're like, boy, I've got one foot up and they just run and charge your shoulder into you and you just fly off into the water. This isn't the mother bird pushing their bird out of the, out of the, out of the nest. This is you have somebody in your life, multiple people in your life. This is what the church is for, by the way, one of the things, where they say, I know God's calling you out of this boat. I'll either walk with it, walk with you for a ways, but this isn't my calling, so I'm not going to walk the whole way, or just gives you that encouragement to take that first step out. We need those types of people around us. Peter didn't have them. Peter had 11 people telling him not to do it. I'll wrap all this up with this. With your fear, you need to realize something. I've said this already. You don't have anything to be afraid of. Why? Because you're walking towards Jesus. And no matter what happens to you in this life, and I'm not saying there won't be bad things that happen. Not at all. In fact, I guarantee you, there will be hard tribulations that happen. Guarantee it. You're still walking towards Jesus. And when, not if, when you start to notice the storm around you, Jesus is still the one you cry out to. 
probably won't put you back in the boat. He'll just say, come on, you have little faith. Let's keep going. We want to be a, a church, a community of believers that impact the world in some way for good. You can impact the world for evil all you want to. It's not good, but you could. It's easy to do, quite frankly. You want to impact this world for good. This town, this community, your neighbors, whatever, for good, you have to get out of the boat first. You can't do it from inside the boat. You can't even go, well, who's driving the boat? Jesus is. You don't even get to do that. You've got to get out and start walking in faith, just like Peter did. It's one of my favorite stories in Scripture because we see Peter's great success getting out of the boat. We see his great failure looking around, and we see the grace and mercy and love of Jesus as he says, come on now. You have little faith. Why did you doubt me? And then he keeps him walking. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning, I know that everyone here that hears these words will have something that they've got to get out of the boat on. And maybe they don't know it yet. Quite frankly, maybe they've ignored it for so long or not listened to you for so long that they can't hear it right now. They can't hear it over the sound of the storm. I pray that whatever it is, if they know it, that you would impress upon them to get out of the boat, myself included. That if we don't know, that you would make it so plainfully clear to us that we cannot deny it. I thank you that you call us out of the boat. That we can walk towards you. And that you are there to lift us up when we need you. I pray your blessing on the rest of our week, Father. It's in the name of your precious Son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen and amen.